Well, please turn in your Bible to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, and uh, this morning uh, we shall uh, read, as we did three or four weeks ago, um, from chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 13, but uh, today I shall be focusing on the first 11 verses of chapter 4. This is a a lengthy uh, exhortation section in uh, this um, written sermon where the the preacher seeks to impress upon his hearers the need to persevere, to keep going in their faith, to not fall away or to harden their hearts. This is a word that we need to hear. It's worth saying, I think, that uh, the Bible does clearly teach that all of God's elect, those whom he has chosen and upon whom he has set his love from all eternity, will endure to the end. God will lose none of those for whom he gave his son. None will snatch us out of his hands. And yet what we find in the scriptures is that one of the means that God uses in his wisdom to keep us going, to help us to endure, is to exhort us, to to warn us. And this is no idle or hypothetical warning. And so we need to listen carefully, even as we rest fully assured in God's unchanging and eternal love for us. So, let us hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. St. Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. As creatures who have been made in God's image, we all yearn for rest. We all yearn for that state and for that sense of complete contentment and full and final satisfaction. Of course, we may look for it in a whole variety of different places. But as Augustine rightly said, we only find true and lasting and ultimate rest in God himself. God's rest is the goal of our existence. God's rest is the purpose, the end point of your life. And God's rest is the subject of our passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, contains repeated references to God's rest. Let me just mention them. Verse 1 while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. And again in verse 3, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 5, quoting Psalm 95 again, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, God's rest. Verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then finally in verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. God's rest 
is clearly the major theme of this passage. And this focus upon God's rest comes, of course, in the context of the preacher's lengthy exhortation to the congregation not to harden their hearts, as the wilderness generation did, but to persevere, to press on in their faith. And so he is essentially urging them, saying, press on in your faith and you will enjoy and enter God's rest. And I want to look at this subject of God's rest this morning under three headings. They are as follows. The promise of God's rest, verses 1 to 3. The nature of God's rest, verses 4 to 8. And then finally, the the future of God's rest, verses 9 and 10. The promise, the nature, and the future of God's rest. So to begin with, point number one, the promise of God's rest. Therefore... Verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Or more literally, not being united with faith. The message not being united with faith in those who heard or who listened. Now here the preacher makes it very clear that God continues to hold out the promise of rest to to us. Here he makes it very clear that although the wilderness generation that he has been speaking about at some length failed to enter his rest by failing to enter the land of Canaan, which was a picture of God's Sabbath rest. This did not lead God to revoke his promise. God did not say when he saw that first Exodus generation hardening their hearts against him and refusing to believe his promise, he did not say, that's it, they've all failed, pretty much all of them, therefore no one is ever going to enter my rest. God did not say that. In his covenant grace, God continued to offer the promise of entering his rest. He continues to offer that promise today. His promise still stands. But that promise needs to be believed. That promise needs to be received by faith. It needs to be grasped with both hands. Otherwise... It will not benefit us in the slightest. And that is the the point, really, that the author is making here at the opening of chapter 4. Having looked back on the wilderness generation's failure to enter God's rest because of their unbelief, he goes on to apply that very much to his contemporary hearers and says to them that they should fear lest it seem that any of them should have failed to reach God's promised rest should have failed to reach it because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. He is saying to them, like the wilderness generation, you have heard good news. Like them, you are gospeled people. 
but the good news that they heard, the good news of God's promise that he would bring them into the land of rest, Canaan, the good news they heard did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. They didn't unite the gospel message they heard with their ears with faith in their hearts. They rejected God's promise. They refused to believe his gospel and therefore they were unable to enter the rest that God had promised them. And you, the preacher says to the Hebrews, are in a similar position, an analogous position. You, after all, have heard good news. You have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You are gospeled people, just like they were. But that gospel promise will not benefit you in the slightest if you do not believe. But as he goes on to say in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, from the very beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, from the foundation of the world, God has promised rest to those who believe him. And that promise still stands. Despite the failure of the wilderness generation to believe, that promise still stands. It's not been revoked and it will remain until the end of the world. The only thing that you need to do to enter God's rest is to receive it. By faith. So the question for you this morning is quite simply this. Do you trust God or not? Do you trust God's promises or not? Do you trust what God says in the Bible or not? Your faith may be very small and very faltering and very imperfect. It may only be the size of a tiny mustard seed. But if you have even that size of faith, then be assured you have entered God's rest and you will enter God's rest. But if you don't believe, if you hear God's promises but harden your hearts, then you will die in the wilderness. Friends, you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You have been privileged and blessed to hear, every week I trust, the message of the gospel. You are very much gospeled people make sure that message that you hear every week benefits you believe it accept it embrace it for then the promise of God's rest is yours
But you might be asking, well, what is this rest that God promises to those who believe? What exactly is the nature of God's rest? Brings me to my next point. Point number two, the nature of God's rest. The author to the Hebrews has just said that God finished his works of creation and the offer of rest was therefore available from the very foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say in verse four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, Psalm 95, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what we see the writer doing here in these verses is drawing a connection between the rest that God himself entered into on the seventh day after he had completed the the works of creation, after he'd finished creating the heavens and the earth, drawing a connection between that rest that God himself entered into on the seventh day and the rest that he promises to those who believe. The my rest, in other words, the my rest of Psalm 95 is that primordial Sabbath rest of God. The rest that is promised to believers is primarily a reference to God's own Sabbath rest. God's Sabbath rest is, as it were, the archetype, the archetype of all later experiences of rest. God's rest that he entered into on the seventh day, having completed the works of creation, provides the paradigm or the pattern for the rest that he intends for God's people. In other words, what we can say with absolute certainty is that the nature of the rest that is promised to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a creational rest. It is God's creation rest. But what we can also say is that it's redemptive. The rest that is promised to believers is creational and redemptive. After all, to whom was this archetypal creational Sabbath rest first promised? Who first heard this promise that they would enter into God's rest? Well, explicitly, those who first heard it were Israel. It was first promised to those who had been redeemed from Egypt, those who had been redeemed from slavery and hard labor in Egypt, redeemed so that they would enter the land of promise, the land of rest. And as we have been reminded several times already, that first generation sadly failed to enter God's rest. They fell in the wilderness through unbelief. As he says in verse 6, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. The disobedience of unbelief. 
But God, in his grace, verse 7, again appoints a certain day. Today. Saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now please note, God does not say, yesterday, long ago, my people of old heard my voice, but they hardened their hearts, and so they did not enter my rest. That would be a true statement. But that is not what God says here in Psalm 95. He explicitly says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, Psalm 95 is God prophetically announcing through the psalmist David that a new day of opportunity has arisen. Today, today, he says, you have the opportunity to enter my rest. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the final period of redemptive history. A period that began with the first coming of my son. And a period that will end with his second coming. We are living In the world of today. Today, through faith in Christ, you can enter into and experience God's creational and redemptive rest. And in addition to that, today, you can even enjoy an initial foretaste of God's final ultimate eschatological rest. Let me explain. Most of the wilderness generation, as we've already seen, failed to enter the promised land because of their hard hearts of unbelief. But not all of them failed to enter. Joshua and Caleb, for example, they entered Canaan. Why? Because they believed God's promise. And when they and their families and all those who are under the age of 20 entered the land of promise, we read in Joshua chapter 21 the following words. The Lord gave them rest. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. In other words, God's promised rest came to pass in the days of Joshua, when the second generation under Joshua's leadership entered into Canaan, the land of promise, the land of rest. That promise was fulfilled. But then, several hundred years later, you have David saying in Psalm 95, today you need to enter God's rest through faith. So you have these two truths in Scripture, in the Old Testament. On the one hand, God's promised rest was fulfilled in the days of Joshua. God makes that clear in Joshua chapter 21. On the other hand, and at the same time, God's promised rest remained unfulfilled. So how do we understand this? How do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory truths? Rest fulfilled, rest unfulfilled. 
Well, the way we are to understand this is to see that the promise of God's rest was fulfilled in the days of Joshua in what we call a typical or symbolic fashion. But the promise of God's rest remained unfulfilled in the days of Joshua in its ultimate eschatological fashion. Let me just repeat that. We understand these two truths, rest fulfilled and rest unfulfilled, in this way. That the promise of God's rest was fulfilled in the days of Joshua in a typical or typological, symbolic fashion. But it remained unfulfilled in its ultimate, final, everlasting eschatological fashion. Now, this is not just a fine scholastic distinction that I'm making here. This is a distinction that the Bible makes, and it's vital for you to understand this key distinction, this distinction between what we call, or what the Bible calls, type and anti-type, shadow and substance, the provisional and the permanent. That distinction runs throughout the New Testament and, in particular, it runs throughout the book of Hebrews. This distinction between shadow and substance, type and anti-type, structures, really, the whole of this preacher's sermon. You will not understand this sermon to the Hebrews unless you understand this basic distinction. And it's this distinction that lies behind the statement he makes in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua had given Israel that final, ultimate eschatological rest, there would have been no need for David several hundred years later to say, today, enter God's rest through faith. And so what we see is this. God's rest, which you enter through faith in Christ, is to use a technical word, massive. It's absolutely massive. Massive in scope. And in content. Massive as a concept. And as a reality. God's Sabbath rest is creational. It's redemptive. It's eschatological. It embraces all the ages. It's a huge concept. It's a massive reality. It begins with the creational archetype, Genesis 2-2, when God enters his rest on the seventh day. It's then pictured in typical provisional fashion when under Joshua the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, that land of rest. And it is fulfilled, ultimately, in the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. 
And of course, that fulfillment in Christ is both now and not yet. It is both today and tomorrow. Yes, the rest that we have entered into through faith in Christ today, we enjoy in part. But not yet in all of its fullness. Which brings me to my third and final point. The future of God's rest. Verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his, meaning not his sinful works, because then the analogy would would fail, meaning just the works we do as Christians in this world. We know, because verse 3 tells us, that we who believe have already entered God's rest. By faith we enjoy a foretaste of God's heavenly eschatological rest today, but we don't yet experience that rest in all of its fullness. There remains a Sabbath rest for us to enter into. That is what we look forward to. That is what we anticipate. That is what we hope for. And that is what we shall experience when God brings this age to a close. When he consummates all history. At that point... In the age of glory, then we shall experience God's rest in all of its fullness. And that shall be a rest of uninterrupted and unspoiled and unlimited joy and celebration. This is really the heart of God's rest. It's a rest of joy. A rest of festivity, a rest of celebration. God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was abounding in joy and pleasure at the very good work that he had done in creation. And that is the joy that we taste in part now as believers united to Christ, who have been redeemed from our sin. And that is the joy divine joy that we shall enter into in all of its fullness in the age to come. It's very interesting that in verse 9, and this doesn't come through in the English translation, but the author uses a different word for rest in verse 9 than he uses elsewhere. He actually coins a term in verse 9, the term sabbatismos. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. And that term is used, I believe, by the author because he wants to emphasize very strongly that the rest that we shall enjoy in the age of glory is a rest of unadulterated joy, festivity and celebration. A rest that will be expressed, how? In unadulterated praise and worship and adoration of God. That is true Sabbath rest. True Sabbath rest is not dull or boring or a heavy burden. True Sabbath rest is being who we are meant to be, which is to say, being the people who fully glorify and enjoy God forever. That's your purpose, isn't it? 
What is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? That is true Sabbath rest. That is the rest for which you were created in the beginning. That is the rest for which you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That is the rest which you shall, through faith in Christ, one day enter into. And then your hearts will no longer be marred by any restlessness whatsoever. Then you shall be at perfect rest in God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's the application. Look at what God has done for you in Christ. He's promised you rest in all of its glorious fullness. Therefore, strive. Keep on believing. Don't fall away. Don't harden your heart. Persevere in your faith. But how? How, you might ask, do I strive to enter God's Sabbath rest that is promised to me? How do I strive by faith? Well, let me just, in closing, mention two ways. Two ways for you to strive. First of all, you strive by observing the Sabbath day. You strive by honouring the Lord's day. By, as I was saying to the children, keeping Sunday special. Remember what God's Sabbath rest is. It's creational, redemptive, and eschatological. And what is our weekly Sabbath day? It's a day of rest from our weekly labors. It's, we might say, creational. It's the day in which we, in particular, remember the redemption that we have in Christ through his death and resurrection. It's redemptive. And it's also the day when we look forward and anticipate and even taste the eternal Sabbath rest that we shall experience in the new creation. It's eschatological. In other words, this day, our weekly Sabbath rest, is a microcosm. It's a beautiful picture of God's eternal Sabbath rest. And God has given it to us as a gift for our good, for our joy, for our blessing. He's given it to us to enable us to strive, to reach that eternal Sabbath rest. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that you will be a much stronger and a much surer and a much happier Christian if you obey the fourth commandment. I guarantee you. If you sanctify the Sabbath day and keep it holy, you will glorify and enjoy God all the more. So strive to enter the eternal Sabbath rest by enjoying your weekly Sabbath rest.
But then secondly, and most importantly, strive in your faith by keeping your eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus. That's the key thing. That's the key way to strive. Look to Jesus, your high priest who has already entered into God's eternal Sabbath rest. He is the only man who currently enjoys God's eternal Sabbath rest, even the glorified spirits in heaven. Don't yet enjoy God's eternal Sabbath rest. Only Jesus Christ does. He has finished his work of accomplishing redemption for all of his people. He has, as it were, downed his tools. His work of accomplishing redemption has been done. Therefore, now he sits down at God's right hand in heaven. And brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ worked himself to death. He literally worked himself to death in order to give you eternal rest. Do you think then that he is going to fail to bring you into that heavenly land of everlasting rest? Of course he won't. Having such assurance in Christ, strive. Strive by keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Be fully assured that your Saviour will hold you fast. Your Saviour will bring you into the consummate joy and glory of God's eternal Sabbath rest. Amen.